Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Whether you are a long-time BRBC member or this is your first time joining us, it is so good to have you back with us together as we worship the real, true, living God together. Now, if you don't know who I am, my name is Peter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bradfield and Ruffham Baptist Church. People call us BRBC, and we are a church that loves Jesus together. We want to help other people to do the same. So we hope that you can encounter grace and truth in Jesus this morning. I want to invite you now, if you have a Bible near you, would you like to take that and open up to Esther chapter 1 this morning. Esther chapter 1, we're going to be reading the whole chapter together. If you don't have a Bible with you, it will show up on the screen next to me. Esther chapter 1, I'll give you a second to turn there. Starting in verse 1, we read these words. Now in the days of Asuerus... Asuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Asuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Asuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Asuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Memukin the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Asuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and of the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Asuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, 
King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will do the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. I'm going to hand it over to James. The book of Esther has it all. There's unexpected heroes and villains. There's love stories. There's unexpected crisis. And there's bravery. There's scary moments. There's long-awaited justice. There's a strange happy ending, but there's one other unexpected thing in the book of Esther. Something is missing. God. Or at least any mention of God. Not even once. Does that mean there's something wrong with the book of Esther? I mean, should it be in the Bible? Should we even study it? Or could it be? That this very real and obvious absence of the word God is part of the book's brilliant and careful artistic design. Could it be that God's seeming lack of presence is really just part of Esther's highly developed way of addressing God's work behind the scenes? You see, throughout this series in the book of Esther, we'll see that God is continually at work, even when we can't see that work as obviously as we want. You see, God works in Esther, not through the visible hand of miracle, but through the invisible hand of providence. So over the next few weeks, we're going to work our way through this. We're going to explore our way through this amazing book, It's enigmatic and elegant plotline. The brilliant but brutal outcomes. The surprising and skillful writing. The twists and the turns. There really is nothing like it. So today, let's begin our study by taking a close look at chapter one. Because in this chapter, we'll stumble our way into a party. Not just any old party, but likely one of the most the best parties ever thrown in history and at this party we'll find a queen who stubbornly digs her heels in we'll find some panicking advisors to the king but we'll also focus on the character of this king king ahasuerus aka king xerxes now what we find in chapter one is the camera seems to linger on this king and what he does We get a close look to see how his cogs turn and how he thinks and operates. 
So I want to take a look at the contours of chapter one, but I also want to ask the question, what is this king like? I mean, is he a good king? What are his traits? He's obviously powerful and rich, but is he capable? Is he controlled? Is he caring? Is he kind? Is he the kind of king that people need? And we'll find out today simply that we need a better king. So here's how we're going to head through this initial study. We're going to map out the story, work our way through the events. We're going to summarize what we see in this king. I'm going to refer to him as Xerxes as we go through. And then I want to bring it down to earth in our lives. Now, before we get to any of those, I think it's really important we do a little bit of history homework to help us situate ourselves and understand the times. Maybe look at it like this. You know, when you're watching uh, a series on your TV and it says previously on and it gives you a synopsis of what you've seen. Now, now think about the difference between a, a, a like a, I don't know, let's say a 12 part series on Amazon Prime or Netflix. It, it would be really difficult to jump in at episode 11, wouldn't it? You, you kind of think to yourself, well, who are those characters? What happened in the story? How am I supposed to figure this out? I mean, it would be almost impossible to enjoy what you're reading. But then compare that with how films work. Imagine sitting down in a cinema in, say, the third film in a four film series. It's a bit easier to grapple with what's going on, isn't it? If you, if you jumped in the, mid, in the middle of all of the Star Wars films, most of these films tend to stand on their own and you can enjoy them. You can kind of think of Esther like that. I mean, it, it does stand on its own and you can appreciate it and grapple with what's going on. But sometimes it's a richer experience if we can locate it into history to see how everything has unfolded up until this point. So let's do a whistle-stop tour of Old Testament his- history. Now, I wonder if you can grab your Bible. You'll see that Esther is about two, is about a third to a half of the way through, isn't it? So that means we've had all of this history so far. I'm going to put that in a nutshell for you. You open your Bibles, you get to Genesis chapter 1. God creates everything. It is good. Then he creates humanity. Very good. Now, this wonderful paradise doesn't last very long because by chapter three, things are broken. Sin has entered the world. People have declared their independence from God and they're seeing the consequences. The world is affected. Their relationships are affected. But they're also, uh, there's this fractured relationship between God and humanity. But God in all his grace seeks to put a plan in motion. He's on mission to restore and renew and redeem. And so he says, I'm going to send somebody who's going to crush the head of the evil one. I've got a promise and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to do this. Now, you continue reading through Genesis and you see his plan unfold. And one of the first key pit stops is Genesis chapter 12, where God calls a guy called Abram. And he says, Abram, go to the land that I'm calling you to be in. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. I'm going to bless you. Here's this land. But... I'm also going to bless the nations through you. This is a big deal. And so you follow your way through Genesis and you see that Abraham's descendants do indeed become a great nation. This is God's people. Now, by Exodus, you find them in slavery and famously through Moses, God delivers his people through the Red Sea, 40 years of wandering, gives them the law, but then they end up in the land again. Remember the land that God had promised Abraham. Now, from this point onwards, you can read this in the book of Joshua, they take their land, but then they then ask for a king. Keep reading through the Old Testament. You can read about the kings that they get. 
First is Saul, head and shoulders above the rest. Good start, awful finish. Then King David, a king to look up to in so many ways, but he most certainly doesn't have a perfect track record. Then you get to King Solomon, so wise and understanding, but his heart is then led astray. Now, following Solomon's reign, there is this tragic, heartbreaking moment where the kingdom is torn in two. It's now two people, the Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And you can read through the book of Chronicles and Kings and see how the different kings of these two peoples, this split nation, how they shaped up. And most of the time, they're just awful. And so the people's hearts and minds and lives just stray from what God has for them. But they get their warnings. The Lord says, look, if you don't shape up, it's going to look bad. I'll give you the wake up call that you really need. And of course, they have that. Because foreign empires, powerful nations come in and take these people off into exile. The northern kingdom of Israel is taken off into Assyria. And then the southern kingdom of Judah is taken into Babylon. They are now captives. They are now slaves. Now during this time, the empire of Persia grows in its power and influence and takes over Babylon and Assyria And during all of these complicated relationships, battles, takeovers between these empires, the people of Israel are then allowed to return home. You can read about this in the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra. In Nehemiah, there's the restoration of the walls and the houses and the people. In Ezra, it's the restoration of the temple. Now, this is when they get to go home. But for some reason, and we don't know why, some of the people of God, some of these people of of Israel and Judah, God's people, they end up staying behind in the Persian Empire. And in one of the key cities, we find Susa, which is where this takes place. And in Susa, there is an expat Jewish community. And Esther is part of this expat community. So this is where the story kicks off. Let's have a look at verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, who, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, now what the author is going to do in the first half of chapter 1 is attempt to blow your mind with the wealth, with the size, with the awesomeness of the Persian Empire and its king. Have a look at the map here. I'll put it just here. This is how big the Persian Empire was. You get everything from India to Egypt. Do you see that? You can kind of see the Mediterranean Sea. You can see where Israel is. You can see where modern day Saudi is. You can see the Persian Gulf. I guess this includes Iraq and a bit of Iran as well. This is a really big deal. But the king is going to put on a party and it is a magnificent party. Look at verses two and three. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media And the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Now I wonder if you could then trace your eyes from verse 4 all the way down to verse 9. And you begin to see some of of the descriptive characteristics of this party. Just how amazing this was. I mean, cast your eyes over this. You, You read words like riches and splendor. And in my translation, it uses the word pomp. And how long does this party go on for? 180 days. 
That's six months. Read some of the other descriptions. There's white and violet curtains, fabrics that were almost impossible to get a hold of, so expensive, marble pillars, gold and silver couches. And the pavement? It's got mosaic, mother of pearl, and precious stones. What were people drinking from? Golden goblets. And then the king says, no pressure on you at this party. Do whatever pleases you. Do what you want. The whole idea here is that the author is communicating. I want you to think about the best party you can. That's what this party is like. It's unreal. Now, why don't we do that? Why don't we for a moment think about some of the most luxurious, amazing things that we have seen at, at parties that we've been to. And I guess, I guess the most luxurious things we have seen in our lives is, is probably wedding receptions. I mean, I speak for myself here. I think wedding, at wedding receptions, I've probably seen the most luxurious, wild things that people could come up with. So, so maybe what we can do is pick the very best things that we have seen from the various wedding receptions that we've been to and put them all into one party. I'll, I'll give this a go. I, I went to a wedding once, a friend from uni. And they had chocolate fountains. I mean, chocolate fountains galore. There was, there was dark chocolate, there was milk chocolate, there was white chocolate, and then platters of things that could be dipped into this chocolate fountain. I had another friend, I couldn't get to go to their wedding, but I heard it was pretty cool, saw some of the photos, and they had a whole wall of pick and mix sweets, and people could go around with their own little scoop and a bag. I mean, that's pretty wild, isn't it? And what about, what about music? Well, I think my brother's wedding probably had the best music I've ever heard. The band was so, so good. Every musician seemed like a professional, but the lead singer... His voice sounded like Michael Jackson, just perfectly. And he wore this beautiful, like, sequin red jacket and had the moves to go with it. I mean, hardly anyone was dancing because his voice was so amazing. And then my dad's cousin, they had, oh, I remember my dad's cousin's, cousin's wedding. They had this, this, like a bar like you have never seen. All of the juices you could imagine, the different types of wine, tonics, you, you name it. It was all there. It was a whole wall. It was incredible. What about the food of a wedding? Well, I think mine and Quince's wedding was pretty good. Someone donated a cow for our wedding, so everybody got to have steak. I guess that was pretty good. And what about the guest list? Well, think about Prince Harry and Meghan's wedding. That was a pretty high-profile guest list. So why don't you do that? Bring in all of the best things you have ever seen at a party. Now, put that into one party, times that by 100, and extend it for six months. Now you're getting closer to this. The author is blowing our minds with the over-the-top, insane levels of luxury at this shindig. Now, here's where things start to get a bit awkward, a bit tense, and a bit messy. Have a look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizthar, Harbona, Bigthar, Agbathar, Zithar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus. Now, what does he do? He asked them to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. In order to do what? In order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So follow this. The, the king is drunk. And, and think about how scary that could have been. I mean, he's not only drunk with power, but he's now powerful and drunk. 
One scholar writes about this king. He says the Persian court was not a safe place to be because Xerxes held great power and he wielded it unpredictably, making decisions from dubious motives with impaired judgment. Now add alcohol into the mix. So he commands that Vashti, the queen, be brought out. Why? In order to show her off because she was lovely to look at. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that Xerxes was a notorious womanizer. So here's the thing. When, when his buddies have, he and his buddies have had their fill of money and power, the talk is now turning to women. And the purpose is to display Vashti off. I mean, think about this. This is entirely consistent with what we know about the king already. He's intent of, on, on proudly showing everyone how rich he is how much better he is and how much good stuff he has. Vashti may have been given the title of queen, but let's read the obvious here. She's nothing more than something to look at and lust over at this party. So Xerxes and his guests wait patiently, ready to gape and to gawk and to goggle at Vashti. Beginning of verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command to delivered by the eunuchs. So Vashti bravely, and this is bravely, says no. And the king's response we see here, panicked anger, or maybe even a rage. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. I mean, he reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, I think it was 1973, the, Rob, the Disney Robin Hood, the cartoon Robin Hood. You know, Robin Hood's the fox and then little John is enormous. He's a bear. It, every, I guess all of us know that. I, I was raised on that film. But you know the King John in that? He's a lion, right? And he's really insecure, incredibly rich and very, very angry when something doesn't go his way. Maybe you can picture a couple of scenes from that film. Reminds me of Xerxes. He's rich, he's insecure and he's angry. He's in this raging hysteria and Xerxes begins to worry at this. Not only that people in in the party are going to find out about this, but the whole empire is going to know. And so his his reaction is kind of laughable, it's entertaining, it's ridiculous. He fears that too many women are going to be inspired by Vashti and chaos is going to happen. So apparently in his mind, the invincible Persian empire could be dismantled by Vashti's brave refusal. Now have a look here in verse 13, all the way down to verse 20. This is the king seeking advice from his princes. And he basically asks them, well, what should they do? I mean, she didn't do what I told her to do. And and then we have one of the the most uh, astute and perhaps politically smart advisors. His name's Mamukin. He soothes the king's wounded ego. And he says, and I'm going to do my best to paraphrase this. He says, this could go viral. So it's time to act decisively and firmly. The foundations of the empire are in danger, but it can be dealt with. Send out an edict, an order, telling everyone that Vashti can never again enter the king's presence. Tell everyone in the entire empire about this. In that way, when others read it, they will follow suit. A chaos in the homes of the empire will be avoided. Other wives won't copy Vashti. Vashti is banned from seeing the king. 
I, w I wonder if you see something of the irony here. <laughs> that Vashti is prevented from doing the very thing she has said no to. <laughs> and just as ironically, the king who's supposed to be completely and ultimately powerful has been undone by Vashti <laughs> in her refusal. And then he doesn't even decide the solution for himself. This powerful man is actually something of a pushover. But then, exactly as the advisor has suggested, that happens. Verse 21, near the end, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did just as Mamukin had proposed. And so, letters go everywhere. Everyone knows about this. You see, the focus of chapter 1 is, is Xerxes, his power, his luxurious party, and his reactions. And you get to the, to the end of chapter one and there's this, this sense of being bothered and disturbed by Xerxes. The author, author seems to want us to see this guy as a pushover or consumed with his politics and himself and he's missing a beat. We get to this point in our interactions with the book of Esther and we're thinking, hang on a second, we need a better king. I and mean, let's have a look at his characteristics. Look at Xerxes. Number one, he's a show-off. Character, consistency, integrity, careful leading seem to mean very little to him. He's pretentious in his party. And his attempt to parade Vashti shows us that he means nothing other than to show off. And let's be honest, there's not much more of putting in life than a show-off. You know, the attempt to put oneself higher than others, better than others which in the end only leads to alienation from others. He's not only a show-off, he's also self-obsessed. I mean, he's absolutely preoccupied with himself, in, in, absorbed and engrossed in his own politics. His advisors aren't really advisors. They're just there to tell him what he wants to hear and to prep up his swelling and challenged ego. But he's gone so far in this that he just doesn't seem to see clearly. Makes me think of the famous Hans Christian Andersen story, the emperor's new clothes. You know how he was duped into thinking that these clothes weren't actually invisible, but they were the finest things ever made. And everybody's on board with the king and they're too afraid to tell him that he's actually not wearing any clothes. And then right at the end, some child jumps out and actually states the obvious. Well, it turns out the emperor of Persia really is so consumed in himself that he can't seem to see the massive problems. He panics. The others might have seen the problems with the king's decisions, but they all seem to be patting him on the back. Thirdly, he's someone who objectifies. Let me explain that. Pe people exist to serve him and his desires. Women exist to serve him, him and his lusts. Character doesn't seem to be something on his agenda. The heart of a person is irrelevant. Vashti is nothing more than a, a, a body. And he'll only give her the time of day on the basis of her looks. Man, if you, if you want help understanding him, think about our culture today. Look at how our culture works. People like to think that others are valued on the basis of their character and their gifts and their personality. Well, great, because that's the kind of culture we're in, right? We care about what's on the inside. Well, no, not really. Our culture elevates and crushes people based on the outside appearances and the possessions that they have. 
I mean, that's what our culture does. Proclaims the value of the heart of a person, the character of a person, the personality of a person, and yet behind the scenes elevates people on the basis of what they have and what they look like. I mean, think about it. If our world was so about the hearts of people, then why are people being, men and women, being crushed by eating disorders? Why is porn, the pandemic of porn, then accepted, encouraged by so many? Think about, what about the heartlessness of Tinder? I mean, our culture's pretty two-faced in this, isn't it? We value people and their personalities, but are then obsessed with image, bodies, and possessions. Xerxes would suit such emptiness oh so very well. So he objectifies people. And, And lastly here, fourthly, he's angry. He's easily thrown off and threatened. He's unstable and he's explosive. He burns when things don't go his way. He's a control freak and he can't handle when something doesn't go his way. So he's a show-off, he's self-obsessed, he objectifies people and he's angry. We need a better king. At the end of chapter one, I, I feel disturbed and bothered by this Xerxes character. Do you feel bothered and disturbed by him too? I wouldn't want to stand in his courts for a moment. Maybe we then begin to think to ourselves, well, let's look somewhere else for a king. Maybe we can look into our world for a better leader, somebody to follow, somebody to give our allegiance to. Yeah, let's look at some of the great leaders we have in our world today. Let's look at our world leaders, people who head up organizations, tech companies, nations, empires. Let's look at them. Maybe we can find someone. Wait. Because usually, these leaders will exhibit at least one trait of Xerxes. And if they don't, then their rules don't last forever. I mean, do you find yourself reading this and and just feel hungry for something or someone better than Xerxes? I mean, here's where we're left this morning. We need a better king than this. We need a better king to lead us. One who isn't a show-off, self-obsessed, objectifies people, and guided by anger. In fact, we need the opposite to Xerxes. We need a better king. And can we find a better king? Yes, we can. (laughs) And his name is King Jesus. Well, then, is Jesus like Xerxes? Let's think about it. Is Jesus a show-off? Does he merely seek the applause of people? Or or is there substance behind his grandeur? Or or is it all pomp? Well, if Jesus was a show-off, then why why did he seek to pray in secret? Mark chapter 1. Why did he go to the wilderness for 40 days and reject the very offer of showing off? Matthew chapter 4. Why did he endure such humiliation at the cross? Well, okay, then is Jesus self-obsessed like Xerxes? Does Jesus look at people, uh, to look for people to, to massage his own wounded ego? Is he so engrossed with himself that he sidelines real people? Well, if Jesus was so self-obsessed, then why did he come for the lost sheep? Luke 15. Why was, he, why was his focus constantly on the needs and interests of others? No. Jesus came to seek and save. Luke chapter 19. Undoubtedly, then, he's the least self-obsessed person there is. Okay, thirdly, does Jesus objectify people like Xerxes? Does he give people value merely on how they look? Does Jesus ever look at the heart? Answer, 
Jesus personalizes. To Jesus, people matter. He sees the heart and the whole person. People matter to him. He is not like Xerxes. You know what's amazing is when you look through history, one of the most distinctive features of a culture that's been touched and transformed by King Jesus is the way they treat and value people. In particular, how they change their approach to women, children, and people from other tribes, clans, and races. Well, what changes? Well, here's it. People become treasured and valued. When a culture is touched and transformed by King Jesus, people are cherished and loved and prized as people. Rodney Stark, a, a well-known sociologist of religion, observes in the first century how Christianity preached a message of a value of people. Now, what we find in history is that this message of a value of people shocks cultures that degraded women, aborted babies and showed racism. Why? Because all of a sudden there was a new message about the value of people and the way of Jesus was revolutionary. Author Nancy Piercy writes, she, she says this, in, in the early church, women were drawn to Christianity because of the biblical sex ethic. So the way of Jesus shocked cultures that depersonalized women and called men to treat their wives like Jesus treats the church, his people. Women were now being seen as cherished with utmost value. I mean, children too were now valued and personalized right from conception. Christians took children into their homes who would have been left to die. Why? Because they matter. More than just objects created in the image of God are wonderfully designed, meshed together, of, um, a wonderful meshed together design of mind, body and soul with incredible value. Atheist philosopher Luke Ferry surprisingly shows that, that Christianity introduced a concept of equal rights. He says, according to Christianity, we were all brothers and the same level as creatures of God. You know what? Often in history, people who belong to a different race, tribal clan are labeled as subhuman. Christianity gave rise to a very different mes message that we are all made in, in, in the image of God. Our world needs this today. With a culture around us that prizes appearance alone, with a growing global pandemic of abortion, with violence against women, with the growing amount of slavery and people trafficking and the racism that needs to be torn down. All of this dismantles the value of a person and we need the way of Jesus that tears apart the objectification of people to pieces and looks at our world and says the way of Jesus gives a better path. Maybe even you need to hear this today. Maybe you personally have listened to this Xerxes-like message of objectification too much. Maybe you need to hear and, and recognize your value before God. You, Psalm 100, 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you want to follow a king? Unlike empty Xerxes, who says, I see you, I know you, I've come for you, and I long for you. So Jesus doesn't objectify like Xerxes. Okay, lastly, is Jesus guided by this threatened kind of an anger? Does he irrationally burn with explosive, unhinged rage? 
Well, true, Jesus got angry, but in the right way. It was his holy discontent. You see, Jesus is constantly self-controlled, so much so that he submits to the will of his father. He's not unhinged. He's careful. He's just. He is the opposite to Xerxes. He's a better kind of a king. And that's the kind of king I want and I need. He's the king who demands my attention and he has my attention. The king who demands my allegiance and has my allegiance. And when we go to the cross, we see all of this in its fullness. You see at the cross with his kingly crown of thorns, we see that Jesus never came to be a show off. He was humiliated for us. At the cross, we see his arms stretched out wide for you. You see, he's personal and he affirms that you were worth the cost to him. You see, he's anything but self-obsessed. At the cross, we see a savior who bears judgment, the judgment we deserved. We see he's not unhinged by anger, but motivated by his tender and deliberate resolve to set us free from our sin. Look at Xerxes. We neither want nor need a king like that. We're left needing and wanting someone different. So let's bow before, follow after and take delight in King Jesus. Maybe even for the first time you're thinking, that's the king I need to be following, Jesus. Well, if that's you, come to Jesus in faith and repentance. Come on the basis of his grace, not your attempt at being good. Come to the King Jesus that we all need and want. This morning, we've introduced ourselves to the story of Esther. We've met a very imperfect king with a big ego. Chapter one of Esther leaves me hungry, wanting something and someone better. We need a better king. And thank God I don't have to look any further than King Jesus. So may we be a people who know, follow and enjoy King Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have what we really need. We have a better king. Jesus is the good king who comes after us to rescue us. God with us. Now, as we go off into the rest of our Sundays and our weeks ahead, may we follow after King Jesus and hear these words that Paul writes. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace, saints.